Bruce Friedman of Adult Side Broker, and welcome to Adult Side Broker Talk, where each week we interview one of the movers and shakers of the adult industry, and we give you a tip on buying and selling websites. This week we'll be speaking with Oliver Carter, author of Under the Counter. You've probably noticed our new podcast site at adultsitebroker.com. It has a more modern look with easier navigation and more information on our guests, including their social media links. You'll find all that at adultsitebrokertalk.com. And we've doubled our affiliate payouts on ASP Cash. Now, when you refer sellers or buyers to us at Adult Site Broker, you're going to receive 20% of our broker commission on any and all sales that result from that referral for life. You can either place a link to us on your site or refer buyers and sellers through an email introduction. Check out ASBCash.com for more details and to sign up. We've also added an events section to our website at AdultSiteBroker.com. Now you can get information on B2B events on our website, as well as special discounts reserved for our clients. Go to AdultSiteBroker.com for more details. Now let's feature our property of the week that's for sale at Adult Site Broker. We're proud to offer for sale a network of reality interracial hardcore porn sites. The flagship site has reality interracial hardcore porn with amateur girls as well as some porn stars. Scenes are shot in public places in beautiful Miami. The second site has big-ass white girls getting fucked by black men. The third site is in the BBC niche. The company has been in business since 2013. They shoot in a true reality style that's resulted in some of the most viral adult videos in the last decade. They're currently developing their fourth site, which is a super site for the network. They're literally a two-person operation, so expenses are very low. With the right owner and marketing, there's a tremendous opportunity to grow even more. They currently have over 400 scenes and do over 400 total sales a month. All the traffic is organic. Only $619,000. Now time for this week's interview. My guest today on Adult Site Broker Talk is Oliver Carter, the author of the book Under the Counter. Oliver, thanks for being with us today on Adult Site Broker Talk. Thanks for having me, Bruce. It's great to be here. It's great to have you. Now, Oliver is a reader in creative economies at the Birmingham Center for Media and Cultural Research at Birmingham City University. Ooh, that's a mouthful. He's interested in how technology can create opportunities for enterprise and the regulation of media. His research into Britain's pornography business has influenced the award-winning documentary series, Sex Posed, as well as the second episode of the 2021 BBC series, Bent Coppers, Crossing the Line of Duty. His latest book, Under the Counter, Britain's Trade in Hardcore Pornographic 8mm Films, was published earlier this year, and he's currently working on a second volume. His blog can be found at under, under dash thecounter-.com. So, Oliver, what motivated you to write this book? Well, I suppose there were two motivating factors, really. Uh, the, the first one was that when I was writing my first book, which was called Making European Cult Cinema, which was about how fans of a particular form of Italian cult cinema or a cycle of Italian cult cinema known as the Giallo, these 
pulpy murder mysteries that were quite popular in the 60s and 70s and petered out in the 80s that were inspired by pulp fiction that were popular in post-war Italy. I was interested in how an economy around these films grew in the UK, but also in the US as well, Bruce. And what people were doing was using technology and finding ways to create artifacts like mag- like fanzines or documentaries or books or T-shirts or even bootleg videos because right. those films weren't widely circulated mm-hmm. uh, other than shown in cinemas. And when home video started, most of the content that was being released was cult stuff because major studios were nervous about releasing major content on VHS because of fear that no one would go to the cinema. So to learn about these films, people started writing fanzines and they were, I suppose, early examples of websites, you know, websites and blogs do the same thing now, but fanzines were doing that job and providing a space to create community, but also I argue a market as well. And while I was doing the research, I came across these films that were called the Phantom Killer series of films. And that's Phantom Killer spelt with an F, F-A-N-T-O-M, and Killer spelled K-I-L-E-R. Okay. And they were supposedly uh, made uh, in Poland by a Polish director, and they were highly sexualized fan interpretations of the Jallo. And they were distributed on on video initially and then and then dvd in britain but they were distributed without a certificate uh, and by a certificate i mean a rating from the british board of film classification so under the video recordings act of 1984 no uncertified video can be distributed in in the uk and this person was was doing that and so i did some digging and i and it was alleged that these films weren't made in Poland but were made in East London because some eagle-eyed viewer had spotted a license plate on one of the cars uh, that certainly wasn't Polish and it was English. So, <laughs> um, And then noticed that it looked an awful lot, a lot like Stoke Newington, uh, which is a location in London. And so I, I emailed the person who I thought might be behind it and expected them to just fob me off. And they said, no, that's me. Um, let's have a chat. So I had a chat. And I got talking to him and he said about how these films had led to him being employed by the Swedish company Private uh, to make hardcore interpretations of uh, of these films. And as more sequels were produced, he was drifting towards hardcore, which, you know, he was distributing effectively without, without certification. So I was really interested in this. And then it got me thinking, has anyone written anything about the British pornography business? And I started to do a bit of digging and found that there were mentions here and there but there was no real critical interrogation that where people showed they're working. And by that, I mean, were showing the kind of sources that they used to document a business that operated in the shadows, that was illicit, that was um, legally problematic to sell pornography in Britain until 2000. And even then, when it was, it was finally permitted to distribute hardcore pornography in the UK, it was still placed under tight constraints. So I was really interested in that. And the second motivating factor, I suppose, and I talk about this in the, in the preface to the book, mm-hmm. uh, my own experience as, as someone growing up at this time in the 90s, and I have to say, you know, small scale would be far too large a term to describe what I was doing, but I was bootlegging pornography, much like Terry Stevens, a, a former <laughs> guest. Many people involved in, in the Britain's trade prior to 2000 Yes. Were, were were bootlegging and it was a very scarce artifact so the only way you could get hold of it was through people who were bootlegging then you'd bootleg again and i'd sell a few copies at school by connecting two vhs recorders together one blank tape put the other one in and 
to do that, you had to be buying content. So you'd, you'd buy it from mail order companies. And there's this one company called Your Choice, where you would send a check for £25, which was not an insignificant sum back in the 1990s. And you'd order a title. And then a few weeks later, magically, you sent this check off to Amsterdam. But a package with a British postmark would appear in your letterbox with the tape in. So there was someone who was accepting orders in Amsterdam, where it was legal to to distribute and sell pornography. But what they were doing is they had cells operating in the UK who were agents acting on their behalf and were bootlegging and sending the titles through the UK postal system. It was probably Terry. <laughs> well, well, the funny story, Bruce, is that he ended up being employed by them to uh, to shoot pornography, and they gave his first break in the business. Oh, wow. So to get access to this material was not straightforward. So I became aware of this economy, and then while doing this first book, I just thought, wow, you know, no one's really written about this time, and it was a really interesting time to think about the lengths that people went to to access pornography, when now all you have to do is load up a computer or a mobile phone and type whatever you wanted to Google, and it's there. And it's a reminder that, you know, pornography was in, in many countries, and still today in some, I suppose, is, is it can be a scarce commodity. And I wanted to tell that story. Hmm. Interesting. So why did you capture porn in the 60s and 70s? Well, it turns out from the research, that is when the British pornography business started to grow. And there's something about that period of time, Bruce, that that was really significant. And I argue that that period of time witnessed a remarkable change and shift in laws and attitudes towards sexuality. You know, you've got a lot of cultural things happening. So the growth of popular music, where you've got people who are singing rock and roll itself, you know, suggests (laughs) sex, doesn't it? Yes. But the the songs like the Rolling Stones, Let's Spend the Night Together. Entering popular culture where people were singing about sex and, and people were, were thinking about sex. So you've got music, you've got film. So we start to see nudity on, on British cinema screens, you know, albeit as an alibi in nudist films where, you know, you have to show people playing volleyball in order to, to justify it, to get around, you know, to show that there was a good to it. Um, and that was also, you know, there's a rich tradition of that in, in America as well and in, and in other parts of the world. And, and then you have some these changes in laws. So there was, a, there was a, a law that was introduced in 1959 called the Obscene Publications Act, which was actually intended to be a liberalizing measure to distinguish between forms of literature that were erotic but were not pornography and what would therefore be pornography. But there was an elasticity in, the, in, in that law, and it, it went back to you know, the 19th century where obscenity law was started and, and the terms you know, having the tendency to deprave and corrupt became the what was known as the test of obscenity and it was the job of the prosecution to prove that a text or an article a publication could deprave or corrupt its intended audience uh, and I don't know about you but your sense just you and me you know our sense of what might be depraved or corrupted would vary based on our backgrounds whatsoever so it was a problematic law and although it was seen to try and control or a growing pornography trade, which was primarily imports in the 1950s and 1960s from, from France. So a lot of the trade was concentrated to Soho in London. And what was significant about that location was that Soho was a melting pot of people from lots of different cultural backgrounds. 
So what you would have is you know, people with transnational networks, particularly from France, let's say, and they'd be importing, you know, smuggling in French books or French postcards, as they were known, to be sold at high markup in the bookstores across London's West End. You've also got other laws. So there's, there's changes to law that are dealing with sex and sexuality. So you've got divorce law, some changes there, slightly liberalizing that. You've got changes in law against homosexuality, changes there, the contraception pill as well. So there's something about the 60s and 70s, uh, particularly the 1960s, where there were these changing attitudes towards sex and sexuality. And it, I don't think it's a mere coincidence that Britain's porn trade and domestic production of pornography emerges at this time and it's reflected in that content but there's also another i suppose condition and and that was the profumo affair which was a political scandal um, where a conservative mp named john profumo was revealed to be having an affair with a 19 year old sex worker named christine keeler who was was in a relationship with someone called stephen ward who was an osteopath but he was friends with a russian spy and he <laughs> this story became highly transmitted by the not just the national media, but the international media, and, and placed a lens on London's West End and the sex lives of politicians and what was happening at that period of time in, in 1963. And it led to the eventual downfall of the, of the then Conservative government. So that was also something that just brought attention to London's West End and Britain and, and these changing attitudes in sex and sexuality. So permissiveness, even though that was a term that was used by people who were critics of these changes, was something that was spoken about in the national media. So yeah, there was something really significant, a, a cultural and economic change taking place in, in the 1960s. It changed slightly in the 1970s, where I think people began to look back at the 1960s and regulators started to think, you know, well, you know, we need to try and tighten that belt of morality, which was loosened in the 1960s. So the 70s in Britain sees people trying to navigate that and make sense of what happened in the 1960s. And that's when you start to see Britain's domestic pornography trade start to contract. But there was a boom in the 1960s. Interesting. How significant was Soho? Because you talk about it a lot in this book. Really, really important. Um, simply put, Soho was the you know the epicenter for pornography distribution in Britain at the time, and you know it's kind of like you know all these different red light districts that exist. You know whether it be Forty Second Street around you know America's New York, um, you've got the red light district in Amsterdam or and, and in Denmark as well. Very different spaces today than they were back in the sixties and seventies, of course, through gentrification and and other changes in legislation that have sought to to clean up those spaces or had those consequences of, of tidying up those places. But Soho back in 1960s was, I suppose, the 42nd Street of Britain, you know, of, of what that was in the 70s, because you had a massive growth of bookshops. And these bookshops in the front will be selling you know, fairly innocent material. So they'd be selling what would be known as glamour mags or nudie mags in the front alongside books, you know, er erotic books. But they would be, you know, roughly within the realm of, of the Obscene Public Publications Act, but there would be a back room. And to get access to that back room, you'd have to speak to the chair, who is this usually opposing male figure, 
often not the person who owned the bookstore. This was person. This was a person who was employed by the owner of the bookstore as a front in case the police raided, so that the owner could say, "Oh, I didn't know that these things were being sold in this back room." But that's what punters you know, people would have to do. They'd go and speak to the chair. If they like the look of you, they'd invite you into the back room where you'd look under the counter, hence the title of the book, at what would be in, in, in the back room. So you know, Soho, which is this you know, hotbed of national attention because of the Perfumo affair, you've got the, the, the jazz stars, a lot of young people going there attracted by the neon lights and the smells of the food that you could get there. One of my interviewees said he remembered being a young man and just the crackle of the neon lights and the smells of all the different food that was being cooked there was, it just attracted him, drew to the area. There were amusement arcades as well. It's like the red light district in Amsterdam, for sure. Yeah, yeah. And, and that's exactly what attracted people. But these bookstores started to grow and it became the main mechanism for distributing pornography in, in Britain in this concentrated area. So people would travel there, pop their pornography in their briefcases and go back to the home counties and then later on, of course, the trade expands and you start to see a, a move towards mail order where there's fewer overheads of running a shop and it's easier to, to hide. And, and then you'd also see you know, sex shops as bookshops move to sex shops where you could legitimately sell sexualized items or marital aids, as they used to call them, <laughs> would it expanded across, across the country. So, yeah, it began in Soho, and that's what all the, the research you know, points towards as Soho being this, you know, the epicenter of London's and Britain's sexual economy. So obscenity law was basically the catalyst for Britain's hardcore porn business, right? I, su I suppose so, yeah. The, the way I term it in the book is that it, it kind of created an, an institutional framework for the pornography business because, because of that looseness of the term obscenity. Mm -hmm. And the fact it was open to interpretation and powers to police it were given to the Metropolitan Police uh, in, in London, who were known as the Obscene Publication Squad. Yeah, I read about them. Very interesting. <laughs> yeah, well, it doesn't change. Uh, you know, Interestingly, today, something just came in my email inbox saying about how a former Metropolitan Police officer um, has been accepting bribes from someone running a uh, sex-related establishment in Soho to open th their premises later. And it's currently at trial at the moment. So even though what I'm talking about in this book goes back to the 60s and 70s, the same narratives are repeating today. So because the, the police were in charge of policing this law, uh, and it was a very tight-knit group of people, they decided that the best way to police this law would be to basically allow hardcore pornography to be distributed, providing that the police were paid. So what they created was, and, and this is not my term, this is a term that's used in all the legal documents, was an informal licensing system where pornographers, whether it be distributors or producers, would pay the police a monthly amount. There was a sliding scale, so the more successful you were, the more money you paid. And so the police per permitted it to happen and this is not just me making this up. This is you know, documented evidence that is in about 200,000 pages of legal documents that I scanned, which documented a, a, an anti-corruption investigation into the Metropolitan Police in 1972, 1973, when the British press revealed the extent of the corruption that was taking place in, in the pornography trade in Britain. 
And it transpired that one of the uh, pornographers was having holidays with one of the members of the Metropolitan Police. And, of course, the police officer said, well, you know, I was undercover, but they weren't. Uh, and and there's, there's lots of stories about goods changing hands. One of the pornographers was a driver for one of the heads of the obscene publication squad, so would drive into crime scenes and things. So it, it was their way to control it and also a way for them to make money from it as, as well. You know, it was a way of control. And the Obscene Publications Act enabled that because it gave the police powers and then you had the looseness of the obscenity. And because of these changing attitudes of the 60s and 70s, it was difficult to pin down what you, pornography could be, what, what, how you would define pornography, but what you would determine would be obscene because people's, you know, the public's attitudes were changing. So, yeah, the obscenity law certainly played an important part here. What this reminds me of is in Thailand, to this day, all of the nightclubs end up having to pay a monthly fee to the local police. And the local officer takes it, takes some for themselves, and gives the majority to their higher up, who gives the majority of that to the guy in charge. And eventually, it works its way up to the person in charge of the Thai police in Thailand. This is why these people pay so much money for their jobs. They end up having to pay a lot of money to get these promotions. This is also why police are never fired. They're only reassigned. Yeah. And, and you know, this is pornography was not the only area where police corruption was taking place. It's well documented that there were other areas where this activity was taking place. And I get asked, you know, what, why do you think this would be the case? And I never got to speak to any police officers during the research, apart from one. And I said, why did this corruption take place? He said, do you really want me to tell you? It's because the pay was crap. And that's the same here. The police make nothing. So the only way they're going to make money is if there's some graft. Let's face it. So films were not the only items being sold in these shops. Why did you focus on these eight millimeter films that were referred to as rollers? Yeah, it's interesting that they were called rollers in, in Britain. I didn't realize that until I spoke to people involved in the trade and they were calling them rollers. You know, I always thought they were called stag films or loops. But in Britain, they were called rollers due to the way that they would roll when they were played back through a projector. So it was interesting that the trade had their own term for these, these films. You guys have your own word for everything. Come on. <laughs> My favorite is dodgy, dodgy. I love that. That would be certainly a, a catch-all term for the activities that I talk about in the book, um, Bruce. Exactly. But, but yes, yeah, so why did I focus on films? Well, what I found really interesting about film in this period is that how difficult it was to make these films. Like We take for granted how easy it is to shoot content these days. And I'm not necessarily talking about professional content, but you can still have professional aspirations and shoot content using an iPhone, of course it will have its limitations. Absolutely. I mean, look at the whole creator space now. A lot of that's done on iPhones. Yeah, and, and, and it's just so it's so easy to do. It, people can run a business from just having an iPad or an iPhone or an Android equivalent. Um, and back with in the 1960s, to, to make an 8mm film, it required a certain level of expertise because it wasn't as if you could just go to a film laboratory and say, excuse me, can you please um, can you please develop a process and print my 15-minute hardcore film? Um, they'd call the police. 
So they had to find their own ways and means of doing it. But Soho postcards were hardcore photographs in packs of five that were sold, again, under the counter, in the back rooms. Kind of like porn trading cards. <laughs> I, I suppose we could call them that. Um, but they're an extension like French postcards, which were popular. So, And they, they were quite convenient in size, so they could easily be hidden or concealed in a pocket. So you know, we, we mustn't also forget about you know the material properties of, of, of pornography and, and how they play an important part in the forms that it takes. And then there was something called typescripts, which was when someone – had a hybrid between the Soho postcard and the erotic novel. So you had people hopped upon speed writing really poor erotic short stories. And what they would do is they would just put in the middle of these, you know, very amateur produced books that were produced on what's called a just a Jessner, which was a, a hand uh, cranked photocopier. Uh, and they would just put uh, glued photographs that were completely unrelated to the story in but they were serving this demand for pornography. And then the economy shifted to films started to be, to, to be introduced and they were, they were made in Britain and, and, and they were made by, you know, a, a small group of people at first who seemed to have been those who knew how to shoot photographs. And what they did is they transferred those skills to, to shooting films. So shooting on 16 millimeter primarily because it was easier to, to edit 16 millimeter film because it was bigger and it had textual properties that were helpful. And then what they would do is they would reduce the size of the image down onto eight millimeter and distribute on eight millimeter because the eight millimeter market was growing considerably in the, in the 1960s. You know, that was the way that you'd be able to watch short films at home. Not like now when you can go onto Netflix or just watch a film so easily. Back then you had these short, you know, cut downs of, Silent films, um, you know, Laurel and Hardy, Buster Keaton, uh, short glamour films of about five or six minutes each, which just depicted striptease, but they were over the counter goods, but very popular. And then you had rollers that start to emerge around 1962, I guess, although it seems that porn hardcore was being shot very minimally in, in the 50s um, in, and 40s in Britain. There's a couple of prints that exist at the Kinsey Institute in Indiana. But the growth is around 1962. And those early films are really interesting because you've got people who are trying to find, you know, how do you shoot a hardcore film if you've never seen one before? <laughs> and that's what you start to see is people playing around with narrative and trying to, you're trying to find ways to represent the sexual acts. And what I found more important, more interesting was bringing these to market was really difficult. So you could only produce a small number of these at the time because of how laborious it was to do it. So that's why I focused on films, because I'm really interested in how people use new technologies. So that new technology of the time to create the hot, these hardcore films that were known as rollers. Right. So who were the early pioneers in the rollers? So the early pioneers, it seems, are about three or four. And, and the first one I found was a guy called Leonard Thorpe. And he was a professional photographer who ended up making hardcore films. And he would distribute them, it seems, primarily for having something called blue movie shows. And these were like pop-up cinemas of the day. So what he would do is put on a, a blue movie show in a house. And it was very easy to do because you just have a projector, uh, which could be put into a suitcase with some films, take it into a house, and he would show it to people who would pay, I have to say, good money to attend these and to view them. And uh, he would offer, apparently, according to one of the newspaper articles, a, a voiceover commentary of how he made them. 
some sort of audio commentary that you would have on DVD or Blu-ray. Um, he was doing it on pornography back then, and he was apparently was shooting in colour, which suggests that he must have been a highly proficient filmmaker to be able to process and distribute art colour. But I've never found any of his films because these are no one has credits on these films. We don't know who made them. For good reason. Well, exactly. You'd be you could be arrested. And so I was trying to find out who made these films, who was behind them. The most important pioneer, I'd say, was a chap called Ivor Cook. And he's the first person I found in the police document uh, to, said to have been involved in making these films. And he was a professional photographer. And he progressed from Soho postcards to, I, I assumed, typescripts. And he seemed to play a central role in setting up this economy. So you see Cook's name appear in so many different cases where people were starting their own businesses and they drew on his skills and he helped you start a number of other operations. Uh, another guy was called Skinny Ken Taylor, who uh, I, it was very much a ghost, Bruce. I could never find out much about him other than his tantalizing tidbit in one newspaper saying that he was involved in the Profumo affair. It was suggested that there was pornography, uh, that Stephen Ward was a pornography collector and there was also mutterings about how the relationship with the Profumo affair to a, a serial murder case as well, where some of the victims starred in hardcore and glamour films. So it's interesting that the Profumo affair keeps on coming up again and again. And he's said to have been involved in, in that, but he was another associate of Ivor Cook's. And then I interviewed someone that I called Derek, I can't give his real name, who just stumbled across someone who ran an antique stall in London and happened to have been someone who was making these, he claimed, in the 1960s. And he gave a lot of insight into how these would be made and talked about something that he termed garage labs. Now, I'd never heard of the term garage lab before, but it was basically someone who would run a processing lab, but it would not be a formal one. It was like running the back of a shoe shop. And they would process anything, no questions asked, using semi-professional equipment. And uh, that was you know, a, a really crucial point to me, to give me an insight into how these films are brought to market. So you're either a technician and able to do it yourself. You either paid off people who worked in formal film labs to do it out of hours because they ran 24-7 because of you know, news and things like that. Or you found a garage lab, like the one in the back of a shoe shop that Derek used, and uh, they would process it for you. Very cool. So tell me about Climax Films. They appear to predate the infamous Color Climax Corporation of Denmark. Yeah, this was fascinating. And, and I remember when I started the research about in you know, 2013, 2014, and I first saw what these films look like. And you, they, they started off as being just uh, packaged in blank boxes, you know, faceless boxes. And then someone decided, well, we could stick a Soho postcard on the front that may not even be from the film, but we could uh, very often while shooting the films, people were taking photographs, much like in you know, that's always been a standard model of practice in the pornography business to, to maximize your profit from one shoot. Uh, so sometimes they'd put just a picture, just a postcard on the front of the box. And then Evan Phillips, the chap who started Climax, he had this idea now it so happened that Phillips was paying the police for a license, so he had the you know the permission from the police. But you know, this was a really significant move, and this is talked about in the police files more than once. That Evan Phillips was the first person in the UK. I don't know how that compares with other um, countries to brand hardcore pornography. And he used the term climax and climax films or climax films of London, as they were known, and they were presenting these really distinctive orange boxes. 
And they became the most prolific producer of rollers in, in, in Britain. And they've made over, well over 100 titles. And eventually, when Denmark legalized pornography in 1969, they moved their operations over to Denmark and smuggled the porn back into Britain because it was just easy to operate because you could use formal laboratories. You could easily um, operate without police corruption. And, and I think that there was an opportunity to produce a higher material standard of product that was not just being produced in clandestine um, conditions. And these films from 1966 onwards were not just being sold in Soho or via mail order. They were being smuggled by agents into to Denmark. We know that climax as a term was used, I think, first in 67 or 68 by, um, by the Tiander brothers who were behind Colour Climax Corporation. And, and it was spelt you know, Climax in, in, in Dutch. And then by the 90, late 1960s, Colour Climax as a brand starts to emerge. So we know that the Tiander brothers, before they started their operations, before they, when they were running bookshops, they were selling these Climax films. And I have a picture of Jens Tiander. I think that's how you pronounce his name. Uh, at um, the Danish sex fair that they started in 1969 to draw attention to this, to legalization and that Denmark were open for business in pornography. That was the whole purpose of them setting up this sex fair. He's holding one of the, you know, the, the British Climax rollers. And I do wonder if they had some link or they helped to bring Climax over from London to Denmark. So if anyone out there has any knowledge of this, you know, I'd love to, to be able to find out more because I did write to the, the last surviving Tiander brother, but um, I received no response. I, I just love to know about this this link between Climax. You know, we're Britain, you know, one of the pioneers in branding in Europe and being the first up to brand and in this space. And what Evan Phillips did is he just transformed Britain's economy because everyone then realised, well, it's not sufficient just to put it in a case or a cardboard box, rather, with a postcard on the front. I now need to brand as well. So we then start to see by 67, all these other brands start to emerge. And by 1972-73, you know, the, the domestic production of pornography reduces markedly um, by that point. And I'll talk probably about that later if it comes up. And that's because uh, so many brands were, were emerging and producing. So about 1,200 films were made between the years 1962 I'd say roughly to 1975, 76. And, and no one's ever said about this in, in Britain. And, and I just, I couldn't believe when I, I was trying to track down this history, trying to trace this history. And the, the database kept growing of all these titles. And wow, you know, well over a thousand films were made between in, in, in around 10 to 12, 13 years. That, that's quite remarkable, considering it was illegally problematic to do so. Yeah, yeah. Well, let's talk about that now. The 70s, obviously, as you mentioned, were a turbulent period for porn in Britain. The Watford Blue movie trial captures this, doesn't it? Yeah. So the Watford Blue movie trial, I was doing research for the book and I was on a, on a website um, called Vintage Erotica, which, um, which, which I, I suppose is like an, serves as an archive because no one's really thought to collect the, you know, the history of, of, of the pornography business because it's been viewed as illicit or othered, you know, for, because of its, its, I argue, its legally problematic status. No one ever thought to collect its, its history. And part of this job is I've been trying to 
collect as many trade documents or evidence of formal documents that help to tell the story of the business, and not just in the UK, but across Europe as well. And I know there are some you know, colleagues like Peter Alalunas who is trying to do the same in, in America and Eric Schaefer and Elena Gorfinkel and, and, other, and, and Maria Larson in Sweden, Clara Armbos, all these different scholars who are you know, we're trying to trying to do this in lieu of archives you know i spoke to an archivist about you know, why is there no porn in archives and he said well porn is the archives dirty secret it's there but they don't tend to tell you that it's there yeah so when i was using these these i suppose crowdsourced archives of, of pornography i saw a picture of a performer who um, who appears in in rollers and it was taken from a magazine and it said in this this page taken scanned from this magazine that this performer, I won't give the name because I don't give performers names, um, was uh, good luck to this performer because they are currently appearing in the Watford Blue Movie Trial. And I thought, what the hell is the Watford Blue Movie Trial? So um, I started to uh, speak to a solicitor, the, a friend of mine. He said, you know, I've got a research assistant. See if he can help you find any information about it. And so I got in touch with this researcher, this, this legal researcher, and he managed to just find a hit on Watford Blue Movie Trial in a newspaper database. And then we discovered that there were legal files that documented the case in Britain's National Archives, which I'd never even thought of as, as a resource. And that's where I found all these, you know, loads of different um, legal documents, including one that was about how the BBC ended up paying for the making of a hardcore roller, which was a, a, a great story. But nevertheless, the <laughs> Watford Blue Movie Trial. And what's significant about this is that this trial was the, apparently, according to the press, the biggest obscenity trial of its time in Britain. And it talked about the activities of a group of people who were making and distributing pornography in Watford. So pornography moving from Soho to the suburbs. And this uh, chap called Anthony Collingborn um, was is said to have been the person who was uh, driving this activity. I, I don't know if that's true or not. I do wonder if he was a patsy. Uh, for someone else. Uh, and he um, started a, a photography studio, which was eventually then used to make rollers when Skinny Ken Taylor came back on the scene. And then he bought a house where a number of the performers lived in like this commune. And it also served as a studio as well. So a lot of the films were made there and were made in Watford. So you have porn being taken out of the city and moving into suburban space. So mm -hmm. the press loved that because that's, you know, it was porn's, <laughs> starting to take over suburbia. Uh, but also because the police corruption was being revealed as well, what I think the prosecutors wanted to do was show that they were taking a hard line on pornography and the Watford Blue Mo movie trial serves as an, as, as an example of that. So the documents show that the prosecutors were very nervous about being able to get a, a guilty conviction under the Obscene Publications Act because, as we said earlier, it's really difficult at that period in time to define what obscenity was. So what they did is they combined obscenity laws with other laws, such as the Sexual Offences Act. So it transpired that some of those films that, that were seized um, featured a performers engaging in anal sex, which were then, between heterosexual couples, was um, criminalised. Yeah, until 1994, Bruce. Until 1994, uh, under the Sexual Offences Act. So they managed to prosecute some performers. So there's an example of performers being prosecuted in Britain because it was always assumed that it was fine to make a pornography as long as you didn't distribute it in Britain. But no, if you were filming certain acts, you, 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 you could be prosecuted. Uh, and also the Postal Services Act, because 
they were selling the films via mail order. So rather than obscenity, it was indecency, which was the, the, the legal term for the Postal Service, which, which was perceived to be of a lesser a, a lesser than obscenity. So you could probably make a stronger case that something was indecent rather than obscene. So by using a combination of these dis- different laws and also merging them with something called the common law, so conspiracy to do these different acts meant that they could gain a, a guilty prosecution. And that's what they did. All these people were found guilty. They, they all appealed and, and, and weren't successful. And I argue in the book that this was a major turning point because after 1972, 73, when this trial happened, sorry, uh, uh, that's when the trade starts to dwindle because you have imports from Denmark being smuggled into Britain, which are of a higher material standard uh, and produced en masse. So it, it was cheaper to import porn, which was smuggled into Britain via you know, chicken um, and bacon lorries traveling from Denmark. Mm-hmm. To uh, and crossing the channel um, and coming into Britain or, or coming up, up north, that it would just would come in through different ports, and that was being smuggled, and that was deemed a better economic model. So, why would you accept, you know, clandestinely produced British poor, which had a lower material standard? You know, it was then something that's produced by that time, you know, Colour Climax had, had, and, and Rodox Trading, the Tiander Brothers company, had grown so much of their laboratory, it was eventually later used by Hollywood companies. You know, they had high standard facilities, professional facilities. So there was a major shift then. And I, I say the Watford Blue movie trial is one of those examples of that shift. Yeah. Now, in the book, you talk about how these debates have particular currency at the moment and not just in the UK. Can you explain that? Well, uh, as I said earlier, the the mere fact that someone at the moment is undergoing trial for corruption in Westminster licensing for a sex-related establishment is that's exactly the kind of practices that were taking place in the Obscene Publication Squad, where people were being bribed um, or given gifts, lavish gifts to enable them to do trade and, and do business. So you know, the fact that police corruption, in particularly in Britain at the moment, is such a hot topic, every week it seems there is some discussion around police corruption. So you know, the book tells how you know, police corruption around p- pornography and how it helped the business to thrive and, and talks about the relationships that pornographers had with, with the law and, and the relationships in turn that the law had with pornography and how that evolved and changed over time. And how they respond to that. So it still has currency there, but I think it, it also has currency in terms of the law. I always say I'm a frustrated lawyer. I always wanted to be a lawyer. And doing this book really meant I had to engage with doctrinal law and engage with a different legislation. You know, there's over 42 laws that are still applicable to pornography in Britain today. And I, I talk about this in the book, and, and I really tried to delve into obscenity law and its relationship to the porn trade, Britain's porn trade. And you look at these attempts to legislate porn in the 60s, 70s, and indeed 80s, where at the end of the book, I tell how so many new laws were introduced to try and combat the trade because the Obscenity Publications Act was just not fit for purpose. So the strategy was was not to just let's rip up the obscenity law and start again. It was, no, let's just bring in another load of laws to control the trade. And that's what they ended up doing. And it's interesting to see now how this debate around online harms and attempts to regulate you know, the online consumption of pornography, how in Britain a, a similar approach is being taken where this the online safety bill, which is going to 
eventually come into law. He's just trying to do so much uh, and you know, situates pornography alongside hate speech and all, all other manners of other online harmful activity. And you look at it and you think, well, they're constantly changing because they just don't know how to how to regulate it. And the book shows that this has been a problem in Britain that just continues to this very day. And there is no simple way to solve it. No, you're right. And let's face it. I mean, I'm sure you're aware of the attack on porn, the war on porn throughout the world. And the epicenter is the United States of America, supposedly the bastion of freedom, which I have uh, certain questions about. And the religious right and the Republican Party has an all-out assault on it between age verification laws and obscenity laws that they're trying to tighten up. And there's a lot of people that just want to make porn illegal. It's, it's remarkable when, to think that, that this is you know, taking place at the moment. And if we look at the history, it's as my colleague Peter Alaluna says, these debates just emerge again and again at just different points in relation to different technologies and, and laws. There's a wonderful book called Perversion for Profit by an American scholar called Whitney Strub. And I really recommend it for anyone who wants to look at that in America, the, the development, as you've just said, of the war on porn. But we've got that here in, in the UK at the moment. Pornography is um, the moral panic around pornography is is really strong at the moment, particularly around access to pornography. And every pornographer that I spoke to you know, who's, who's active today had no issue around age verification per se. They understand, don't want children accessing their content. What they're saying is that the way they're going about it is the wrong way. It's ridiculous. And what they're doing is they're keeping adults from accessing it because these laws are just so restrictive and they're asking for so much information. When someone goes on a porn site, the last thing they want to do is give too much information. You think people really want to give their ID, their state-issued ID on a porn site? They're already freaking out about giving their credit card information and all that. But with all of the identity theft and, and those things going on, do people really want to do that? I don't think so. Yeah, data leaks and things like that, you know, where you could have data on people's um, you know, particular sexual proclivities on what they like to you know, view and access. You remember the Ashley Madison data leak? Yeah, of course. That was a major example of how that led to blackmail of people and things like that, um, digital blackmail. But one of the interesting things today about Soho is that, okay, it's, it's completely different how it was in the 60s, 70s and 80s. But there's still shops that are selling pornography. Well, at least it's still staying with its character. And, but, but it survived COVID. And you look at some of these shops and I think, how do they exist? So someone is still buying pornography. And I do wonder if it's a particular age group who feel more comfortable going into a shop to buy physical pornography, which has no trace if you're paying cash and you haven't got to give your credit card. You haven't got to be nervous about using the computer. So I do wonder if all of this will lead to, you know, again, shifts in the economy where maybe the the material form will, will, will start to become more dominant. But yeah. Yeah. Maybe TPTs will come back after all. I see you have a second volume of Under the Counter planned. Why don't you give us a little bit of a hint of what to expect? 
Yeah, so uh, as I said at the beginning, I, I wrongfully thought that I'd be able to cover 1960 to 2000, that period in, in one book, and it became so apparent during the writing that that was not going to be possible. So I've already started on the second volume, so I've got two chapters already. Uh, I'm aiming to get it done within about three years, but what the book will do is pick up from where I leave off in 1984 in the introduction of the Video Recordings Act, which meant that anything released on video had to go through the British Board of Film Classification. And ostensibly, all those laws that were introduced in the early in the early 1980s, that I argue, pushed pornography into a black market, um, which was around bootleg videos. So I talk about that period. I also talk about pornography for export, so that there was an economy of pornography production in Britain, but that was primarily for export, so working for companies like Private, and your choice as well in, in in the Netherlands. I talk a lot about your choice. This mail order company where you'd send off your check to a mail order advert uh, and an address in Amsterdam, and magically three days later, once the check had been received by the company, you'd receive your pornography in the post with a British postmark, which suggested that these there were cells operating in in the UK selling hardcore pornography to get around customs evasion laws. So I tell that story there and talk about them as, a, as, as an example of a like a transnational company that that's how they evaded the law to be able to supply pornography to, to hardcore pornography to British people. And then I also talk about the growth of satellite porn. So there's a short period when satellite television emerged in Britain and people were selling um, in, decrypted boxes and cards, which meant you could access European broadcasts of hardcore pornography. But the, the government shut that down very, very quickly. But that's not a story that's been been said much about. So I'm trying to find the people who are involved in that. And then I talk, I, I might talk about the Lover's Guide, which was when there was a series of Lover's Guide films that were released on VHS, which were which showed hardcore pornography and were given 18 certificates and sold in shops. But because it was for lovemaking and promoting that, they permitted erections on screen. So that's an important journey to legalization. And then I talk about um, Bend Over, um, Lindsay Honey, who was probably Britain's most recognizable transnational pornographer, who was employed by American studios, began as a as a protege of the pornographer Mike Freeman in the 1980s, was a bootlegger in the late 80s, and then worked for private, making films, and then started the Bend Over character, which was Britain's answer to John Stagliano's Buttman in the 1990s and uh, he serves as like a, uh, someone who takes us through to, to legalization in 2000 so we conducted a few interviews with him on camera and uh, those are drawn on in the book and then talk about the legal cases that led eventually to the liberalization of the R18 certificate which permitted the the distribution of pornog hardcore pornography in Britain providing that it was sold in licensed sex shops and was certified by the British Board of Classification. So porn's never been freely available and, and never will, although you could argue that it is via the internet. Yeah, it kind of is. Well, just a reminder to everyone, you can buy the book at under-the-counter.com. I know you're going to enjoy it just like I did. Well, Oliver, I'd like to thank you for being our guest today on Adult Slate Broker Talk, and I hope we'll get a chance to do it again soon. I hope so, Bruce. Thanks very much for your time. And if any listeners have you know any histories to share, particularly around British 8mm pornography and its circulation in the United States or even across Europe, you know, please just get in touch with me via the website. Um, it's really important to try and collect these histories. So I do rely very, very heavily on, uh, on collectors and people who were uh, alive during that period. So do get in touch. Thank you. Thank you.
My broker tip today is part one on how to buy a site. The first question to ask yourself is what kind of site would you like to buy? Would you like a tube site, a cam site, a dating site, a membership site, a social media site, or something else? If you want to buy a membership site, what type of site do you want and in what niche? There are literally hundreds of niches and many sub-niches. For instance, let's say you want to buy a gay site. Under gay, there's bears or mature, bareback, Asian, Latino, amateur, bi, black, euro, and fetish, along with many fetishes under that classification. Plus, there's hardcore, jocks, porn stars, solo, trans, twinks, and uniforms. Straight has even more sub-niches. I can't tell you how many people contact me and just say, I want to buy a site or I want to buy a pay site. I need more information than that. How you make this decision should be based on these factors. What interests you? What you enjoy should definitely play a part in what you buy. If you like men and want to make money on a straight site, that's probably a really bad idea. Same thing if you're straight and want to buy a gay site. So what you like plays a part. What's your budget? This is something you need to establish at the very beginning. Not only do you need to know what it is you're working with, but some classifications of sites are more expensive than others. For instance, if you want a cam site with any traffic or revenue at all, you're going to need a lot of money. In fact, to buy any established and successful site will be somewhat expensive. If you buy a site that's pretty much just a platform without traffic or sales, you're going to need a huge investment to build it up. In that case, it might actually be as good or better just to start your own site. That way you get exactly what it is you're looking for. We'll talk about this subject more next week. And next week we'll be speaking with Daniel Abramovich of VR Bangers. And that's it for this week's Adult Site Broker Talk. I'd once again like to thank my guest, Oliver Carter. Talk to you again next week on Adult Site Broker Talk. I'm Bruce Friedman. 